What many genuine Christians don't comprehend is that militant feminism is well-organized movement in order to put lesbians in the pulpit in mainline churches. It has nothing to do with the respect and the honor and the dignity that we are commanded in the Scripture to give women. It has nothing to do with that. What militant feminism is about is destroying biblical teaching, destroying biblical morality, destroying biblical concept as they are revealed in the Scripture. And what they have managed to do is to link their heresy with women. So that whenever a servant of the living God criticizes or attacks their heresy as a heresy, would be criticized as being anti-woman. But God knows the truth. Back in the 60s, a handful of militant feminists gathered at Yale University. And they have gathered with a certain strategy. And they had followed that strategy for the last 30 years. And they gathered, they said, we want to destroy the masculine image of God. But we have to start first by destroying the masculinity and domination of male in the church. And they said, the way we're going to approach this is we're going to talk about equality. We're going to hammer away at equality. And who would not be sympathetic with the concept of equality? And I want to tell you, with every candor in my being, that it was the Lord Jesus Christ Himself that have elevated women from deprivation and drudgery. But I'm also thankful that these militant feminists now have tipped their hand. And now they've revealed what they've been after all along. And not just men in the church, but they're after God and His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Good luck to them because they're going to need it. At least one godly woman who took up that challenge, an authoress, a Roman Catholic by the name of Helen Hull-Hatchcock, And she said the following words. Listen carefully. She said, Radical feminism is one of the most devastating religious epidemics of our and any other time. An infectious and communicable disease of the human spirit for which there is no easy cure and which affects our children, the future of the human race, and our future church. End of the quote. Above all, what a contrast these women are to Sarah the wife of Abraham. And you will understand this contrast better when you look at Genesis 18 and 19. This is the sixth in a series of eight sermons from the life of Abraham. We have seen that there were 13 years of silence between chapter 16 and chapter 17. There is 13 years of spiritual stagnation in the life of Abraham between those two chapters. But now Abraham and Sarah have been revived again have been energized again by El Shaddai, the God Almighty. So in the first five verses of chapter 18, the Lord appears to Abraham with two angels on each side. And the Lord appears this time in a different way than He appeared before. He did not come in a dream this time. He did not materialize as El Shaddai. He came in the person of the pre-incarnate Christ. And Abraham recognizes immediately that he was standing before no ordinary men. They were very special. There was something divine about him. So in an act of worship, he bowed before him. As if to say, oh my Lord, you know me. I'm Abraham. You've been talking to me. And if it pleases you, come by into my house and rest a while. 
Abraham was longing for the Lord's companionship. Abraham was longing for the Lord's fellowship. And with a typical Eastern hospitality, he washes their feet. And then in verses 6 to 8, Abraham rushes into the tent and he shares his excitement with Sarah. He said, Sarah, guess what? Quick, prepare some bread. And the Bible said she immediately sprung into action. Well, men, husbands, I'm not advising you to habitually bring visitors unannounced to your wife (laughs) night after night. But I know that when the occasion presents itself, it becomes an opportunity for wives to manifest their spirituality. (laughs) I try to imagine Abraham. (laughs) And in his excitement, he's running to the tent. They said, Sarah, wrestle up some food. The Lord is here. And she beautifully and graciously responds. Now, if this one of these militant feminists, I'll tell you what she would have done she would have exploded like a faulty pressure cooker. I mean, she was spat and splattered like a piece of metal in a microwave oven. But Sarah acted with graciousness. She acted with hospitality. No wonder that the Apostle Peter in 1 Peter 3, when he he chooses Sarah above all the Old Testament women as a model, as an example, as an illustration of a godly wife. She was not perfect. But neither was Abraham. But with amazing resilience, she showed her mettle under the pressure of the unexpected. Sarah was gracious and hospitable, so was Abraham. He did not just sit there and puff on his cigar, and he said, hey, get some food ready. He got up and washed their feet. Then he ran into the cattle and herd, and he picked up the best that he has in order for the servants to prepare it. Verses 9 to 12 The Lord asks for Sarah by name. He said, where's Sarah? But you know what? Christ always asks for you by name. He always asks for me by name. He called Zacchaeus by name to come down from the treetop. He knew him by name. He called Nathaniel by name before he met him. He knew him by name. He told the Samaritan woman about her past. He knew her by name. He called Saul of Tarsus on his road to Damascus. He knew him by name. All things are known to him. And you're not just a number on his computer. He knows you by name. He loves you as if you were the only one who's ever lived. In verse 10, God repeats the promise of an upcoming son by Sarah. He's making sure now there's no misunderstanding. It's a coming son by Sarah. In verse 10 of chapter 18, you say, wait a minute, why is the Lord repeating the promise? In chapter 17, we saw him telling Abraham, and Abraham was shocked and surprised. (laughs) Is the Lord repeating himself? Well, you see, Abraham knew about it, but he didn't tell Sarah. (laughs) You see, in chapter 17, God prepared Abraham's heart for the coming news. God prepared Abraham's heart for the coming blessing. And now it is time for him to prepare Sarah for that great blessing that is about to come upon her. So in Genesis 18, the Lord prepares Sarah's heart. Verse 12, Sarah could not fathom. I mean, she could not comprehend what the Lord is saying. I mean, can you imagine, can you picture a 99-year-old man going home to his 90-year-old wife? And he said, guess what, honey? (laughs) We're going to have a baby. That's enough to give her a heart attack. 
But instead of a heart attack, Sarah laughs to herself in the kitchen. She didn't think anybody else will know, but the Lord knows. He knows the very secrets of our hearts. But notice the Lord does not rebuke Sarah for laughing. He asks Abraham, why is Sarah laughing? I think it's a rebuke to Abraham for not passing the word into Sarah. Verse 14, the Lord says, is anything too difficult for the Lord? You probably got yourself in a such situation someday and you said, Lord, why don't you answer my prayer? Is there anything so difficult for you? You can't do this little thing for me. James tells us that if we ask and do not receive, it is because we're asking wrongly. If we ask and don't receive, it is because we're asking selfishly. If we ask and don't receive, it is because we're asking ignorantly. Is anything too difficult for the Lord? And the answer is no. It is we who need to learn the lesson of knowing what to do with the blessings that God gives us. Numbers eleven twenty three. God says to Moses, is the Lord power limited? No. In Jeremiah thirty two seventeen, Jeremiah said to the Lord, nothing is too difficult for you. In Luke 1, 37, when the angel Gabriel came to the Virgin Mary and he said to her, she'll have a baby that is conceived of the Holy Spirit. He said, nothing is difficult with the Lord. But out of fear, Sarah denies her laughter. Yet, as a result of her encounter with the Lord, Sarah became a woman of faith. Hebrews 11.11 tells us, By faith, even Sarah herself received the ability to conceive, even beyond the proper time of life, since she considered him faithful who has promised. And verses 16 to 19 You see a beautiful picture of Abraham walking with the Lord, fellowshipping with the Lord. You see a beautiful picture of Abraham communing with the Lord, walking outside of his tent. You see a beautiful picture of communication that is taking place on a deeper level with the Lord. When was it the last time you did that? When was it the last time that you sit with the Lord, communicated on a deeper level? Verse 17. The Lord tells Abraham a secret. Here's what the Lord said. He said, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Now, believers, please listen to me very carefully. Because I heard so many people say to me, how do I discern the will of God? I can't hear God. I don't know what the will of God is. I want to tell you that God reveals His secret to those who love Him. You notice I didn't say those who say that they love Him. Those who love Him. God announces His will to those who love Him and commune with Him and wait upon Him. No wonder Psalm 25, 14 says, The secret of the Lord is for those who fear Him, and He will make them know His covenant. Amos 3, 7 says, Surely the Lord God does nothing unless He reveals His secret counsel to His servants, the prophets. The Lord confines in Abraham. He said, Abraham... I want to tell you about something that is grieving my heart. Abraham, there's something on the horizon. In fact, Abraham, I want to tell you it's in your backyard. Sodom and Gomorrah, Abraham, is overgrown with immorality. The cup of iniquity is full to the rim, Abraham. It is time for judgment. I have waited patiently for so long. The abomination of homosexuality is provoking my justice, Abraham. 
I want to ask you, what do you think the Lord is saying to those who love Him about America today? God is saying, I have been patient and slow to anger with America. The nation that once honored me now despises me with their immorality. The nation that once wanted to be a city, sit on a hill, now provoke me with their abomination. The nation from whose pulpits the gospel was proclaimed. Now these same pulpits have been preoccupied with homosexuality, with immorality, and with unbelief and apostasy. The nation who was once took the gospel of my son Jesus Christ to the world have become self-seekers. They have become self-pleasers. They have become self-promoters. The nation that once honored me and honored my word in the schools are now despising me and distributing condoms instead of prayer. The nation that once fasted and prayed and humbled themselves before me and sought my face are now using my name in vain. The nation that once revered my son now forbid his name from being mentioned in political gathering. His name is not politically correct. The nation that once sought my righteousness and my holiness are now not ashamed of their immorality and of despising of my word. God's cup is filled to the brim with every passing day. And the judgment of God has already begun. It's not coming. It has already begun. And we're not awake yet. God is sending us wake-up call after wake-up call, and we're still asleep. But you know what God's judgment is? God's hand of restraint has been upon this nation in a very special way. And God's judgment, He's not going to come in anger and whip. He's just going to take slowly take His hands of restraint away from America. Oh, God forbid. What God is beginning to do, and He's leaving us to the consequences of our choices. And consequently, our cities are war zones. Our schools are battlefields. Our education system is in shambles. Our hospitals are butchering millions of babies every year. Our youth are dying with AIDS. Millions are hooked on drugs and alcoholism. And the government's spending is out of control. And now what is coming down the pike is that the freedom of speech and the freedom of religion is being accorded to every weird group that came down the pike except for Christians. They call it religion-free workplace. And instead of repenting, what do we do? We have gay parade marches. Instead of repenting, we have brought sodomy into the military. Instead of repenting, we are releasing criminals into the streets by the hundreds. I wonder if any of the great men and women who have died in battle in order to preserve freedom for this nation, I wonder if any of them would come back to life again today and they would come and see what is happening to this country. I wonder what they would say. i tell you what they would say. They would say, we did not die for this national debauchery. We did not give up our lives for the government-led immorality. We did not leave widows and orphans so that you can have gay parades. That's what they would say. They would say, we have died to preserve the good and the godly things of this nation. They would say, we have sacrificed our lives so that the truth, not lies and deception, would prevail. That's what they would say. And the Lord said to Abraham that he's about to go for an inspection of Sodom and Gomorrah. 
But the Lord knew ahead of time that Sodom and Gomorrah are not going to pass inspection. He knew that. Would America pass inspection? Now, if you want to see the level of spiritual maturity that Abraham had reached, please don't miss this one. I want you to mark it in your Bibles. If you want to see the level of spiritual maturity, as soon as the Lord gave His secret to Abraham, Abraham went on his knees and he began to pray for his nephew. He began to intercede on behalf of his lukewarm Christian nephew. I want you to know that the level of your spiritual maturity and your spiritual maturity and your spiritual maturity and my spiritual maturity is measured by the time we spend praying for others. Do you spend your prayer time little as it is? Give me, give me, do this for me, do this, do this. Or do you deliberately intercede on behalf of others, even with tears? And beginning with verse 24... You begin to see the Lord listening to Abraham. But also you're going to see something else. And that is an incredible, typical Middle East bargaining scene. (laughs) Abraham started bargaining with the Lord. He started with 50. Thinking, well, if you start with a small number, the Lord might say no. So he, he said, Lord, if there are 50... Righteous people in the city. Would you spare it, Lord? Thinking in his mind, he said, I sure hope that Lot had witnessed to at least 50 people. Thinking that at least that Lot might, but he said, he knows in his heart that Lot would not have done that. So he goes back to the Lord. He said, Lord, what about if there are 40? Would you spare the city for the sake of 40 righteous? Hoping that Lot would have witnessed to 40 people. But he knew in his heart it would not work. The Lord said, I will spare it for 50. I will spare it for 40. So he goes down to 30. And then he goes down to 10, to 20. And then he goes down to 10 thinking, well, at least if he got five others other than his family, God will spare the city. But it was not so. It was not so. There were no 10 righteous people in the city of Sodom. As you read this passage, you're going to notice three things that the Lord does before He withhold His hands of restraints away with the certainty of judgment to follow. He does three things. First, He holds an inquest on the moral condition before the judgment comes. Secondly, God is accessible for the intercessions and the prayers of His people. Thirdly, you notice... A few righteous can make a difference. I could preach a sermon on each one of those three, not alone an outline of a sermon by itself, but I won't do that. I'll keep moving. And God agreed to spare Sodom and Gomorrah if ten righteous people could be found. Let me summarize chapter 19 for you. The angelic messengers sent by God to Sodom, and they come to the city, and Lot is sitting at the gate. That means he was the president of the city council. Ordinary people do not sit at the gate. He must have been the mayor of the city. He has received social acceptability. He is the nephew of the great hero Abraham who rescued them. And he gained a political office and became a powerful man. Notice that when the heavenly visitors came to Abraham, they found him in the place of obedience. And when they came to Lot, They found him in a place of civic respectability. 
What a contrast. Notice in verse 16 of chapter 19. This is probably one of the most devastating words in the Scripture. Just please look at it, underline it, make a note of it. When the angels urged Lot to leave, the Bible said he hesitated. He hesitated. He could not give up all of his worldly accumulation. He could not give up all of his prestige and acceptability in that society. He couldn't give up all of his real estate holdings, his stocks and bonds. Little he knew that it would be burned to smithereen. But the angel of the Lord grabbed his hand. It is a tragic truth that he had to be led by force. That he had to be pulled out of there by force for the sake of Abraham. These angelic visitors took his hand, took his wife's hand, took his two daughters' hand, and they grabbed him and ran out. I want to tell you with all candor that any believer who's staying in a dead church that refuses to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, they may have to be forced out as God's hand of the strain keep moving away. Any believer who's staying in an apostate church because of social acceptability or because of social status, they may one day force the Holy Spirit to pull them out in order to save their souls. But ultimately, folks like Lot's wife, who insisted on looking back, paid the price. The choice is ours. The choice is yours. Lot's life is really a tragic story of a man who experienced God firsthand and becomes blinded to worldly success and let his worldly success stop him from witnessing to his neighbors. He let his worldly success become the goal in his life and the focus of his life. I pray God forbid that this would not be you, this would not be me. Let me conclude. As I began to pray over this message, the Lord was giving it to me, and I know it's a hard message, but it is the truth. I became convicted that prophetically speaking, and you don't hear me spend a great deal of time on prophecy, But prophetically speaking, we are heading for the last days. God seems to be calling His faithful people to stand up. God seemed to be drawing a line, and not in the sand, it's in concrete. Because Jesus' return is around the corner. Listen carefully. I used to wonder when I read some of the signs of the return of Christ is apostasy in the church, and I couldn't understand it. How can it be apostasy in the church? Now I do. For the first time in history, 2,000 year Christian history, apostasy and heresies are not just coming into the church, it's coming from the leadership of the church and filtering down. The signs of the end of time are here. The question is, where will you be when it comes? Where will you be when Jesus returns? If you're a person who has never committed your life to the Lord Jesus Christ, And say, I have been playing churchianity for so long. I've been playing Christianity for so long. I want to be committed to the Lord Jesus Christ. Then I'm asking believers who know the Lord Jesus Christ, who have let the successes of this world 
blinded their eyes from witnessing to their neighbors and to their friends. And say, Lord, I want to make a covenant with you today. I don't want worldly success. I don't want to let my profession take over. I will stand up and commit myself to witness to my neighbors and my friends. And then the last group of people that I want to speak to are the believers who know Jesus. Who, yes, pray and commune with Him. But never have taken their eyes off themselves. And they prayed for themselves, prayed for their needs, prayed for their families, and never sought to intercede on behalf of the sinners and on behalf of our nation. If it is your commitment today that you will be like Abraham, that you will witness, and that you will pray and you will intercede on behalf of the nation, I want you to make that covenant with God today. Father God, open eyes today, Lord Jesus. All across this nation, open eyes. And Father God, for those of us who have chosen easier way than to witness publicly and profess our love for you to our neighbors and our colleagues and our friends, we repent. We ask you to forgive us. We ask you to renew us today. That we may make your gospel to be the foremost in our hearts and our minds. Not our profession, not our success, not our worldly material gain. For Father, we come to you with these prayers boldly, not because of anything in us that is worthy, but because of the worth of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is our intercessor on your right hand. In his name I pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Dr. Michael Youssef, recently featured on Leading the Way. If you'd like to know more about us, please visit ltw.org. That's ltw.org.